You're listening to Click Here. I'm Dina Temple Raston. So if you've heard the last couple of episodes, you've probably noticed we did something a little different. We might have sounded a little like a public radio show. And there's a good reason for that. We created five special Click Here shows that are going out to over 100 public radio stations across the country. And if you didn't hear them on the airwaves, we thought we'd give you a chance to hear them here. We're going to play all five of them through the holiday season. They're all stories about people making and breaking our digital world, but in a little different format. And today's show looks at modern digital morality. We hope you like it. Chat GPT, AI machines, satellite, engine ignition, click here, and liftoff. We begin in Iraq, where the government created an unusual app to police what is perceived as indecent content. And the app got its start, of all places, at a soccer game. The 25th Arabian Gulf Cup. Think of World Cup soccer, but for the eight Gulf states. Iraq hosted it back in January. Hundreds of thousands of people showed up to watch the matches. In fact, there were so many people, even fans who bought tickets couldn't get into the stadium. With one notable exception. What happened then was a couple of uh, social media influencers, or what they call fashionistas, they were able to get VIP seats on almost all the games. This is Ayman. He's a pharmacist in Iraq who is also an avid consumer of social media. We're only using his first name because his own post could get him in trouble with the authorities. And according to Ayman, just seeing those influencers on social media sitting in those VIP boxes at the Arabian Gulf Cup game, it drove people crazy. They got so upset that the influencers had used their connections to get those coveted seats, it launched a kind of online resistance movement. Ordinary people began to flag anything those influencers posted from inside the game. So that's what sparked the hashtag or what they call cancel indecent content. Is it because they're really after indecent content or do they feel like these influencers have too much power? I think that's how it started. But the government also find a good way to like implement such a law that gives them so much power of whatever is being published on the Internet. And that's exactly what the government did. Just days after all this erupted, Iraq's Ministry of Interior said it would form a committee and figure out a way for Iraqis to alert authorities to anything they found offensive on social media. And then they created an app for that. They called it Belech, or Report, although snitch is probably a better description. This is a Facebook video post from the Ministry of Interior announcing the app. It's easy to do, the video says. Open the app, there's a field to paste links to any indecent content you find, and then all you have to do is hit send. And what sorts of things should you report, it asks? Anything that seems an affront to, and I'm quoting here, the general taste. General taste. No idea what that means. It's so vague and, like, doesn't have any meaning. I mean, what is indecent content and to who is it is indecent? Those are the questions that we should ask, right? Something Iman worries about because of how he spends a lot of his time. When he's not taking care of his customers at the pharmacy, 
He does what a lot of people do. He pulls out his phone and starts scrolling. Do you spend a lot of time on social media? I kind of do. I guess I do. And Ayman's favorite platform is X, formerly known as Twitter. I don't like like the Instagram and like the whole Mark Zuckerberg thing. I'm not into that. So he settled for Elon Musk. And during his breaks at work, he picks up his phone and just starts typing. Whatever comes to mind, even if it might get him in trouble. Well, I actually tweet a lot of controversial things that doesn't go with the status quo, really progressive ideas. Give me some examples. What do you mean? Let's say right now in Ramadan, you can get arrested if you eat during the fasting hours. So I go on Twitter and say that's the dumbest thing ever. People can eat and cannot eat whenever they like. You should not be arrested for not practicing a religious act. And a lot of people took offense to that. And now he's worried people might not just take offense. They might get the government to arrest him. And his concern isn't without precedent. It actually feels like an echo from the past. After Saddam Hussein was overthrown 20 years ago, Iraq got a new constitution. And the constitution guaranteed things like freedom of expression. But there was a notable exception. When that expression violated what they called public morality. But here's the rub. There was no definition as to what that meant. And that's what paved the way for the Balagh, or report app. Anything could be a moral violation. It was all in the eyes of the beholder. But people didn't see it that way at first. A lot of people didn't really see how bad it was at first because they were really focused on those quote-unquote fashionistas. As he saw it, ordinary Iraqis were too focused on annoying VIP soccer fans to see the longer-term ramifications. A lot of our parents and a lot of the old demographic of Iraq, they grew up in war-torn times. A lot of old Iraqis really gravitate towards authoritarian systems. Because it makes them feel more comfortable? Exactly. It makes them feel more comfortable because they're really familiar with it through the whole Saddam Hussein era. In fact, Ayman says, when the ministry launched the app, even his dad thought it was okay. Me and my dad had a real long conversation about this, and we came to an agreement. He was kind of for it at the beginning, but after we talked, he kind of changed his mind because I pointed out some things to him that he probably didn't like see or, you know. What happens when this app goes beyond telling complaints about annoying rich people and morphs into a state-run app the government can use to silence any speech it doesn't like? So to be honest, all of us as Iraqis, um, sometimes if we feel that we are uh, trapped in this system, we don't know whether we are indemocratic or authoritarian. This is Ali al-Bayati, and he used to be a member of the Iraqi High Commission for Human Rights. And he says nowhere is that tension more apparent than in the debate over what can or can't be said in post-Saddam Hussein Iraq. We don't know whether we need to stay silent because speaking out is useless or we need to do that because it is our system, our country, and it is part of the constitution. Al-Bayadi says the app is a high-tech iteration of something that's been going on in Iraq for generations. Before 2003, I can remember the advice of our parents in, in our house was 
Be careful sometimes the door can hear you or listen to you when you are talking. And the door can especially hear you when you're posting on social media. Al-Baryadi worries that instead of the government agents he saw as a child physically tracking down critics of Saddam's bath regime, now the government has something much more powerful and pervasive. The app has turned everyone into a possible agent of the government, and all they have to do is click. Repeating again the same a copy of Ba'ath regime, but in different way. We asked Iraq's Ministry of Interior to put us in touch with the government official in charge of the app. His name is Ayed Radi. His English wasn't great, so he answered all our questions via text. And he justified the app with a phrase you often hear from governments that institute these kinds of vaguely shaped morality crackdowns. He said that lots of people are reporting affronts to what the government characterizes as family values. People are reporting their neighbors, he added, simply because they are, quote, fighting tooth and nail for their families. The fears around this app have already been proven out. In just the first few months it was launched, at least a dozen people have been arrested. Ayman walked us through some of those cases. Let me tell you about two. One of them called Hassan al-Shumari. Hassan makes TikTok videos, and he needed a woman to be in one of his skits, but he lives in southern Iraq, which is fairly religious. They think women should not go on TV. So he had to make do because he needed a female character. So he dressed like one. And they arrested him for playing a woman in his TikTok skits. So that was his crime, I guess. Or consider the case of Asal Hossam, another TikToker with a huge following. She was sentenced to two years because she was dressing provocatively or something. She showed a little bit of skin in her TikToks, and she was sentenced for two years. Do you know Aboud uh, Skiba? Yes, I do. Aboud Skiba was the next one on the list. Aboud Skiba is a construction worker with a kind of unusual talent. He basically is a guy who perfected the English accent without ever speaking a coherent sentence or a word. He speaks gibberish, essentially. I love you, we hold me. I love you, we hold So why would that be flagged as indecent? I guess some people find it not funny. You can be reported for just being annoying online. Which is one of the many perils of having a rule that is so open to interpretation. You say annoying, your neighbor says indecent. And I think it was kept vague for a reason. So they can, like, arrest people and play within the lines of the law. I mean, essentially, you are turning citizens into police officers, right? Marwa Fatafta works with the digital advocacy group Access Now. And she says the app has created a kind of open season on expression. Given it's, you know, it's very vague and elastic nature, for me, it's almost like you're telling Iraqis to walk between uh, the raindrops without getting wet. Like, good luck with that. And the arbiter of right and wrong in Iraq is now a government office with a very checkered past. In a country like Iraq, and as, as soon as the Ministry of Interior gets involved in regulating people's speech and deciding what and what is not allowed 
to be said and done online, you know that freedom of expression is in big trouble. That's because the Ministry of Interior is also the government body that oversees policing in Iraq. Under Saddam Hussein, one of the Ministry of Interior's responsibilities was finding and silencing his critics. Marwa Fatafta says now the government is silencing comedians and satirists. Is there a reason for that? Lack of sense of humor? I mean, I wouldn't dare to say publicly that Iraqis don't have a sense of humor. I think the government doesn't have a sense of humor. Fatafta is concerned that the government will only widen the net. Comedians and satirists and dancers today, political dissidents and investigative journalists tomorrow. And then, everyday people after that. Has your behavior changed at all as a result of this app? Well, no, I don't have a big following. This is Ayman, the Twitter-loving pharmacist again. So I don't really care. I'm, like, relying on the incompetence of the government so they can't find me. Got it. And and when people actually say to you, hey, I'm going to report you, what's your response? I just blocked them and moved on with my life. But before moving on with his life completely, Ayman did tweet out a thread about the dangers of the Snitch app to try to get his friends and family to think twice before using it. So this is an Iraqi dialect, so it's not like proper Arabic. Okay. Uh, you are bright and educated people. You can influence your friends and families. If you let the country or the government control your freedom of speech, this is the beginning of the end. Don't let the government tell you what to post and what not to post. Because you all know how easily can be weaponized and they can arrest anyone that disagrees with them, with any idea. And we go back to the dark ages where you can be jailed solely for your thoughts. It's very poetic. I am very poetic, thank you very much. When we hear about this kind of overreach in a country like Iraq, it's easy to write all this off as a carryover from the Saddam Hussein era, a despot's effort to keep people in line. But it turns out this kind of digital snooping and snitching is happening a lot closer to home, and you might have already opted into it. Every app that you download, your phone is the snitch. It's a snitch in your pocket. That's after the break. This is Click Here. Stay with us. If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily from Recorded Future News. It serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she and will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. 
Today, we're bringing you stories about how some authorities are weaponizing technology to enforce their standard of morality. Earlier, we saw how neighbors turned on neighbors in Iraq. But this next story shows you you may not even need a third party to rat you out. Your phone can do it all on its own. We all know now that the apps we use, the websites we visit, they're all tracking our locations, revealing our identities, tagging our interests. But what might be less understood is that all that information is being sold to someone else, someone who might use that data against you in some very unsettling ways. For Latisse Fisher, it all started with a 911 call in Starksville, Mississippi. Latisse was already a mother of three, and she had given birth to a stillborn, so she called the paramedics for help. From the moment they arrived at her house, they alleged, at least in the media, publicly, and even in in other places, that they found the scene suspicious. This is Lori Bertram Roberts, a local activist based in Jackson, Mississippi. And while there was nothing to suggest that Latisse Fisher had had anything but a stillbirth, events started to unfold with a momentum of their own. Suddenly there was an investigation, a grand jury, and about a year after the stillbirth, Latisse Fisher was arrested and charged with second-degree murder for the death of her child. I get a Facebook message. It's not even a phone call. I get a Facebook message with a link to the story with Latisse's mugshot on the front of the story. Which is how Lori Roberts got involved. She started helping Latisse Fisher. And while Latisse declined to talk to us on the record, she did agree to allow Lori Roberts to tell her story because Lori was right there when it all happened. If you Google the Latisse Fisher mugshot, it's heartbreaking. It captures a woman in an oversized orange prison shirt who looks like she just stopped crying long enough to pose for the photograph. There's one of those police measurement tapes behind her on the wall, 63 inches tall, 5'3", but she looks even smaller. If you're not moved by her mugshot, like just the visible pain and anguish on her face, um, I don't know what to say about you as a human. Um, I was just so disturbed by that picture. The mugshot and the story made national headlines, and the grand jury indictment accused Latisse Fisher of a particular kind of murder. They said baby Fisher wasn't a stillborn, but instead was killed, quote, invincing a depraved heart, which is actually a legal term. It essentially means Fisher showed indifference to a human life. They had her all over the newspaper as this person who had murdered a baby when she did no such thing. But the more Roberts looked into the case, the more concerned she became, because it appeared to hinge on a test that dates back to the 17th century. It's literally from the 1600s. It's an invalid, non-scientific test. It's called the float test, and it's performed by placing lung tissue into water and observing whether the tissue floats or sinks. According to the state of Mississippi, an airless lung, one that's never taken in air, sinks. And a lung that floats is seen as an indication of having taken at least one breath. It all sounds bizarrely like the test they used in the witch trials in the 17th century. They used to tie someone up they suspect of being a witch and then throw them in deep water. If they sank to the bottom, they were human. If they floated, well, they were witches. The lung float test appeared around the same time. It's one of the things that's used to prosecute people in stillbirth cases for home birth. So it's one of the things that if you're in the birth justice community, you know. 
But there was something else that Fisher's case hinged on. When she was arrested by the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation, the agents asked if she had her cell phone with her. And as she's leaving, they're like, make sure you have your phone so you can call your husband when you're done. She's like, okay. So she gets her phone, she gets in the SUV. They drive downtown, they lead her into an interrogation room, and they ask her to surrender her phone. And she tried to resist that, but they were like, we'll hold you here until you give us your password. They have a warrant to search it. And then they went through her search history and they were like, she said they were giddy when they found it. The it, in this case, was what she'd been searching for on her phone. It turns out that her search history revealed that at some point during her pregnancy, she had looked for abortion pills. Abortion was legal at the time, and there was no indication that she had bought any or taken any. But prosecutors said the search itself went to motive and intent. It suggested she didn't want this baby. The case was eventually dismissed without any real explanation. But in the wake of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, it has raised an uncomfortable question. As states begin to outlaw abortion, will people's private digital footprints become evidence against them in court? Researcher Zach Edwards says there's no need for a neighbor to snitch on you. Your phone is the snitch. It's a snitch in your pocket. And every app that you download, the permissions that you give that app, all of the other companies that are integrated into that app also get those same permissions. And and that's where the trust fall happens. The thing is, we leave digital footprints behind us all the time sometimes intentionally, but just as often without realizing that we've given the apps on our phones permission to follow us around, to track our locations and searches, and then bundle all that up and sell it to some third party. And then they can use that data in ways we never dreamed of. Consider this thing that happened in 2015. A mobile marketing firm had a handful of anti-abortion clients. And one of the people in that firm offered in a very markety way to identify people who were seeking abortions and then try to stop them. He said he could send targeted ads by text or email to women who were actually sitting inside Planned Parenthood clinics. And then they could send them messages urging them to be informed or get the facts first. Then they'd provide links to the anti-abortion group websites. Imagine getting one of those while you're waiting to see a doctor. It would freak people out. Those types of ads have been happening for years, and that's easy peasy. Zach Edwards is an expert in data brokers, the people who package your data and sell it to marketers and advertisers. And he says this kind of location targeting is pretty straightforward. The concept of just being like, I have 100000 a month, and I want to target around this circle, a half-mile circle. Yeah, so you may get some of the residential people around there. Who cares? You're going to definitely get that abortion clinic, too. The phones we carry, the apps we download, the things we search for all reveal a little bit about who we are, our interests, our demographics, who we hang out with. Lots of things that we don't think twice about because it never occurred to us that it would ever be public. And data brokers can vacuum all that up, package it, and create an anonymous profile from these daily routines. Then they sell it to people. There's a name for it. It's called pattern data. There's at least half a dozen data brokers that are selling pattern data at the moment. Uh, SafeGraph. They can figure out that someone is a woman of childbearing age or that she recently visited an abortion clinic. 
And let me get my screen sharing going on here. Edward showed me exactly how it worked, and it was crazy how easy it was. So Placer.ai is one of the data brokers that... On his screen is the homepage of a data broker called Placer AI. It has a system that holds all the data they've gathered on people. And all you have to do is log in, and then you can do a search through that data really easily. You just go to the search bar and, say, type in the address or even the words, Planned Parenthood. Zach Edwards shows how easy it is to track someone who visited a Planned Parenthood in Texas. He hit a couple of keys, and what pops up is one of those satellite images from Google Maps. He zooms in on three houses set in a very velvety green field. So right now we are looking at a map of a rural location where one of the three houses on this screen visited a Planned Parenthood. So how do you know that? When you have access to the system, you're able to search a property name. A property name, like, say, Planned Parenthood. And then immediately you will be shown details about where people started before they came to that location. So you could see where people were right before going to the clinic. And if you zoom into the starting point, and it happens to be a house, well, you've probably found where they live. And you can also parse different details about the audience. So this is a data broker, so they are going to have demographic data and other data that's available to layer on top of this location data. Demographic data that reveals whether a woman lives there, which could explain who might have just been at Planned Parenthood. Or perhaps a doctor lives there, and that person might be performing abortions. And if the person looking through all this data happens to be sitting in one of those states where abortion is now criminalized, this kind of search could give them all they need to call the police and report someone they suspect of having or performing an abortion. It's uh, a choose-your-own non-compliant data adventure brought to you by big tech and basically allowed because we have no laws to speak of. In a statement, Placer AI said that aside from a few researchers, they have no record of anyone doing this kind of search. But anyone could have done it right up until last year, when a story in Motherboard revealed how easy it was. After that story, Placer AI tweaked its search engine to make it hard to pinpoint things like this. But it didn't remove the underlying data. So while you can't automatically search the phrase Planned Parenthood anymore, you could put in the address if you knew it. Placer AI said it has an ongoing effort to, quote, remove all sensitive places from our system. But even after their tweaks, Edwards says he can still recreate his search without too much trouble. He just kept modifying it until he got what he was looking for. Say there was a florist or a drugstore a block away from the Planned Parenthood. You could search for that and then trace the activity from there and then narrow it down. You just search for something else. You add a word or two. You remove a word or two to just refine your own query. A searchable data set like this is especially troubling in a place like Texas. They've passed a law that provides a $10,000 bounty to citizens who report abortions. This is the dystopic scenario where everyone is a sheriff, you know, uh, I am the law type of stuff. And the snitch in your pocket is the snitch next door that wants to get a $10,000 bounty that costs them $1.50 to buy your pattern data. All of this gets even more troubling if you're doing these searches in rural areas, 
where there are fewer people, it's easier to pinpoint who is who. And with all this data floating out there, right now there is very little regulation around how it's collected and sold. So companies have relatively free reign to do what they want. And while there is some momentum building for some kind of data protection law here in the U.S., that could take years. In the meantime, some people are taking data protection into their own hands. I've used um, Garmin fitness tracking apps. I've used the Samsung fitness tracking apps. Raven Fugit lives in Tennessee. And until recently, she was one of those people who had downloaded all those health apps on her phone. Like MyCycle, I used to use um, Flow. The Flow app tracks when you're having cramps or other period symptoms. And I used it to track the variations in my period as it came and went to try and seek proper contraception. It can predict ovulation. And then if you were to become pregnant, you can even add that information to the app too. You can export the data and take it to your doctor. So if you were to become pregnant and you were having high blood pressure or something like that, the app tracks that and you could take it to your doctor and let them see it. Sounds simple enough and super helpful. But Fugit says she now sees it through a different lens. But if you're someone who has no intention of keeping the pregnancy and need to seek termination and they have that information through an app, they might be able to track you down and use it against you. So are those still on your phone? They are not. I, uh, As soon as I got wind of the potential overturn, I deleted the data and deleted the apps to try and make sure that none of my information was there because the fear of someone trying to see that data and use it against me somehow is not something that I'm interested in. One company called Narrative sold user information linked to specific apps, including from those period tracking apps you can download. And while the data didn't include information harvested from fertility apps themselves, it did provide a list of devices that have installed the apps, which means it could have identified users like Raven. When news stories reported on this, many brokers, including Narrative, stopped selling data linked to fertility apps. Even so, if this seems alarmist or hypothetical, ask the Catholic priest who was outed after a Catholic news site was able to analyze data on Grindr, the gay dating app. People are actually using app data to target others. I feel like I sound like a conspiracy theorist, but this is all stuff that's verified. Like, this isn't stuff that, like, Lori says. Like, I'm not no big tech guru. This is all stuff that I had to learn because of the work I do. That's Lori Roberts again, the person who helped Latisse Fisher with her case in Mississippi. And she says even if you take steps to protect yourself digitally, the weakest link might not be the technology. As with most tech issues, the biggest problem is probably of the human variety. I want to stress right now, not just that you erase the digital evidence and that you use a VPN and that you use stuff like Signal and that you, you know, that you use these things to protect yourself digitally, but also close your mouth. The snitches, it appears, are everywhere. This is Click Here. When we come back, we go to Iran, where protesters are skirting a government crackdown in really creative ways. I think people who post these videos just want to be seen, or they want their voice to be heard. Stay with us. 
Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dina Templerest, and this is Click Here. Today, we're looking at what happens when authorities use digital weapons to impose their vision of morality on ordinary citizens. Across the globe, authorities have launched apps, tracked phones, and used people's data against them in increasingly hostile ways, all of which has forced people to get creative. And it turns out this virtual battle can be sparked by things that take on an unexpected life of their own, which is how our third story begins, with a single photograph taken from inside an Iranian prison. It showed a young man named Hodenor Lajei. His hands and feet were shackled to a pole, and there was a glass of water a short distance away from him. Apparently, he had complained to his guards that he was thirsty, so they got Hodenor some water and then put it just out of his reach. The photograph went viral. And then, as fate would have it, a few weeks later, a young woman named Masa Amini was arrested. Apparently, she was not wearing her hijab modestly enough for Iran's morality police. She died while in custody. So the Hordenor photograph sent ripples through Iranian society, and then the death of Masa Amini seemed like a final straw. Something seemed to snap. The headline on the protest was regime change. But underneath the surface, the demonstrations were really about small, deeply personal things. Young Iranians wanted the freedom not just to dress how they wanted to dress, but to love who they wanted to love and say what they wanted to say. All of which was unacceptable to the conservative leadership in Tehran. The crackdown was swift. There were shootings, large-scale arrests, and public executions. And then the protests died down. Or at least they did on the surface. Thousands of people in the street protested uh, against the regime or supreme leader. But now we can see some um, more creative ways to show their protest. This is someone we'll call Hussein. We spoke to him when the protests were at their height. And then we reached out to him again this past spring. He was living in Tehran. And he says if you know where to look, the green shoots of dissent are everywhere. Take what happened when a rare snow fell on Tehran last winter, sending everyone into the parks to play. Usually people, mostly young people, go outside to play with the snow. They uh, make uh, snowmen. But here's the thing. They weren't just making traditional snowmen. This other figure began to appear. A snowman who was hunched over, his arms wrapped around a pole in a familiar position. It was formed like Hodanur Lajai. Hodanur, the prisoner reaching out for water, whose photo went viral. And that made me so emotional. You see, people uh, are playing with snow, but at the same time, they are thinking of protesters who are not between us today. And it isn't just snowmen. Hodanur Lajai seems to pop up in the most unexpected places now. 
Students have been recreating his tortured pose in flash mobs on campus. On the soccer pitch, players have taken to actually kind of doing a hordenor on the field after they score a goal. But the protests went well beyond snowmen and soccer games. They shifted into the virtual world where protesters could more easily mask their identities and where it was harder for the authorities to track them. The VPN, or Virtual Private Network, became a must-have. Think of a VPN as a kind of head fake in cyberspace. It hides your IP address, making it look like you're logging in from somewhere else. You could log in from Tehran, but the VPN makes it look like you're in Texas. So anyone can log into a website that the Iranian authorities had banned, like Instagram or Facebook. But when the authorities realized what was happening, they started targeting the VPNs themselves. They've always disrupted VPNs, but now what we see is like a daily aggressive effort on their part to do it. Mani Mastofi is an Iranian lawyer and human rights advocate. He leads the Mion Group, which, among other things, helps protect Iranians online. He's based in the U.S., but he works with protesters on the ground in Tehran. And he says finding a working VPN in Iran and staying on it is getting harder and harder. Keeping VPNs online in an authoritarian setting is always a cat and mouse game. So the VPN goes up, it's working for a little while, the Iranian government gets bored of it or sick of it and and attacks it, and then the VPN provider has to provide a response. It's a constant, ongoing battle. We talk to and work with a lot of these VPN providers, and, you know, they are really struggling to keep up with both the demand but also the tactics of the government. Normally, you can expect a VPN to work for weeks, months even. But in Iran, Mani says he's seeing VPNs go down after just a few hours. Some of that might be linked to a huge increase in demand, but it's also due to stepped-up attacks by the regime. The way the Iranian government is handling these moments is by just making the overall environment more restrictive. And I'm sure there are people who have these videos or document these acts of civil disobedience that we don't see, in part because they're not getting online or or they're just being discouraged, right? They don't want to try the 10th VPN. But that's not always efficient, attacking one VPN at a time. They could eventually do it. They could eventually block that VPN. It's just like, how much energy do they need to put into doing it successfully? So the government appears to be getting just a little bit sneakier. Consider the case of Argo. Then we saw a couple months later, more recently, attacking of a very popular VPN called Argo VPN, um, which was doing better than other VPNs and getting people online during all of this crisis. Argo. Like the Ben Affleck movie. Remember, it was about Canada hiding Americans in Tehran during the hostage crisis. And all of a sudden, fake versions of our Argo VPN were circulating, and those fake versions were stealing people's users. They were forms of spyware. Social engineering at its best. Here's a free VPN. All you have to do is click. It very strategically uses people's own desperation to get online against them to make the internet less secure for them. But it isn't just VPNs. When Elon Musk announced he'd introduced Starlink internet access in Iran, state-sponsored hackers began creating fake links. Click here and you can download Starlink on your phone, your computer, it said. And then when you clicked, 
Malware was loaded on your device. Accessing database. And it isn't just Iranian citizens in the crosshairs. The government is also targeting anyone who is trying to help them. Consider the case of a human rights worker in the U.S. working with Iranians. She got an email from someone posing as a journalist from the Washington Post, and they were asking for help with a story. They asked to meet her on Zoom, and they sent her a link to the meeting. Shara DeGrippo, who does threat research, said she found the link wasn't what it seemed. You click the link, and it looks like a login to Zoom, but in fact, it's a login to a threat actor's landing page. So they're playing on camaraderie. 100%. That's the best way to do it. I think certain kinds of social engineering are most benefited by an idea of common goal because rapport is hard to build over internet communication. But you can have a little bit of rapport instantly if it appears that you're a part of the same circles. That's pretty smart. Oh yeah, the threat actors are smart. They know what they're doing. Sherrod and others suspect at least some of these attacks are the work of some hackers with an unexpected name. They're called Charming Kitten. They're a hacking group linked to Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps, which appears to be leading not just the suppression of the original street protests, but the online offensive, too. And the voices online are only growing louder. They're also just generally trying to slow down communications. Months after the protests had died down, we spoke with someone we'll call Amin. He was one of the people in Tehran out in the streets protesting, and he has since moved to New York. And he says even a simple phone call home is an exercise in frustration now. So I would say when we want to talk, around only around half the time it works. The other time I wanted to talk to my sister, we spent almost an hour trying to talk to each other. Every time we could connect, uh, we would lose the connection after 30 seconds or a minute. And, you know... She just collapsed emotionally and she started crying and we had to do it some other time. In a lot of ways, the Iranian leadership's attempts to muzzle the opposition were easier during the street protests. They could just detain and arrest people. Digital protests are more diffuse, so authorities have a harder time knowing where they'll pop up and how to stop them. Like this video, documenting defiance on the fringes of an engineering conference in Tehran. This is Zainab Kazampour, an engineer attendee of a conference captured on a cell phone video back in February. She's wearing dark skinny jeans and an oversized black jacket. And her headscarf is draped around her neck. And as she begins to address the crowd, an ordinary meeting becomes an extraordinary moment of protest. Zainab pulls a long shiny ponytail onto her shoulder and the crowd begins to cheer. Zainab explains that someone just told her that in order to run for a seat on the organization's board, her hair must be covered, and she's having none of it. I won't legitimize an association that doesn't allow women in without a hijab, she says. Someone somewhere cuts her mic in mid-sentence. And as she exits, she slowly unwinds her scarf from around her neck and tosses it over her shoulder. The audience watches as it floats in midair and then softly lands in front of a giant portrait of Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Khomeini.
This solitary moment of protest committed behind auditorium doors in a corner of Tehran might never have gone any further had someone not captured it on their cell phone and then posted it online. The video slipped past censors, found its way to one of those functioning VPNs, and then spread like wildfire. The government authorities seemed to have caught up with her a short time later. Less than a week after that video went viral, Zainab appeared in a new one. This time, her hair was covered and her face was solemn. And she was apologizing for her outburst at the conference. And according to Iran Wire, an independent news service for the Iranian diaspora, the state has charged her with disrespecting the hijab. What we've seen in those cases is they sometimes don't try to punish people who are that visible because these are sort of one-off acts. What they do is they try to get these people to basically take back their act in some way. The problem for the regime is that even apology videos can't undo what's done. They don't make people unsee what they've seen. A prisoner who wants a glass of water or a woman engineer who asks for some semblance of equality. So those videos you're talking about are still getting out because, yes, VPNs are still um, working. But what's happening is that a, a user has to basically try four, five, six VPNs till they find the one that gets them online that allows them to use some application like WhatsApp or Signal or Telegram to get a video out onto a social media platform that millions will see it. The videos rack up views and likes and shares, and there's nothing the regime can do to stop that. Like this video viewed hundreds of thousands of times. Five young women outside an apartment complex in the capital city, dancing in unison, all long hair and swinging hips, midriff showing. It was one of those choreographed videos for TikTok, and it somehow slipped through the regime's fingers. Or this one, which is less catchy, but powerful nonetheless. It shows a woman putting up a protest banner on a billboard over a highway in Iran. The traffic roars below her as she balances on the billboard scaffolding. And there are countless others. Run for your lives if you get any shelters, because we the women of here are not coming for you, you filthy, treacherous dictators. Ordinary people, ordinary videos, in extraordinary times. Who, who are these videos for? Do you think it's for the diaspora and the outside world? Or do you think even sharing them within Iran has an effect? I think that the answer is, is there for everyone, right? I think people who post these videos just want to be seen or they want their voice to be heard. There is one protest song that has been heard more than anyone expected. This is Baraye, or Four. It was posted on Instagram and then not only went viral, but won a Grammy, presented by the First Lady, Jill Biden. This song became the anthem of the Masa Amini protests. Uh, 
the first winner of the Recording Academy's best song for social change to Sherveen Ajapur, an Iranian singer-songwriter. The video was viewed 40 million times in 48 hours. Suddenly, everyone seemed to be doing a Baraye cover. For dancing in the alleys and the streets, for the thrill and the fear of getting caught kissing. Even Coldplay performed it. They were in a stadium in Buenos Aires. We're going to send this with love from here to Iran. And here we go. Accompanying a video of the songwriter Shervin singing the haunting lyrics. Because we want to be free and play outside in the streets, he sings. Because we feel terror when it's time to kiss. Because of my sister, your sisters, all our sisters. Their voices are getting out into the world because even the most autocratic regime can't stifle a creative impulse. It can't stop people from building prisoner snowmen or from tossing a hijab to the ground at a conference or giving voice to deeply felt despair in a song that rocks the world. Thankfully, all the technology in the world still can't silence that. Next week, on a special holiday episode of Click Here, meet a member of Ukraine's all-volunteer IT army. Are you like a computer science guy? Mm, more like enthusiast. <laughs> you love computers. Yes. He's one of the thousands of people who have joined the fight. He's an IT professional by day and hacking Russia by night. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and that's next Tuesday on Click Here. Click Here is a production of Recorded Future News. This week's episode was written and hosted by Dina Temple-Raston and produced by Sean Powers, Will Jarvis, and me, Jade Abdul-Malik. It was edited by Karen Duffin and Lou Olkowski and fact-checked by Darren Ancrum. It contains original music by Ben Livingston, who also wrote our theme. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and was engineered by John Delore. That's it for this week. We'll be back on Tuesday. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to the record.media.